Shalom. Most of you speak English. Peace. Peace to you today. I'm so glad to be with you and have the opportunity to tell you my story. But first, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Joseph, son of David. You might call me Joseph Davidson today in common parlance. I'm just an ordinary guy. Um, I was in the Christmas story, and you may have read of me there and be familiar with me somewhat as a result of that, but most of the time I was in the background. A few people really noticed me. I was much like the father of the bride in weddings today. Few people noticed, but let me tell you what I describe cost me something very dear. My main claim to fame was that I was a son of David. David lived a thousand years earlier, and so there were thousands of descendants. But we each considered ourselves to be something special, something set apart because prophecy had said that the Messiah would come out of the line of David. So we knew that there was something special about our line. I grew up in Bethlehem, was born there, but it was just a small town about six, seven miles south of the capital city of Jerusalem. There was no work for me in Bethlehem, and so I eventually moved northward about 60 miles to Nazareth. Nazareth was a good growing village, although it didn't have a very good reputation. Nazareth was the brunt of many jokes. People would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet that's where I made my living. I'm a carpenter. I work with my hands. I like to, to make things, to take wood and shape it and cut it and shave it and, and hold on to it and, and make something good from cypress or cedar or olive wood. You have some good oak wood in your, in your temple here today, and, and I would love to get my hands on some of that. There was good work in Nazareth. It was close to the Sea of Galilee up north in the hill country of Galilee. And so there was a lot of work with the boats that they put out into the sea for fishing. And I made a good living making and working on those boats and, and building furniture for houses and repairing furniture for people who didn't have a lot of money. But the best thing that happened to me in Nazareth was meeting a young girl named Mary. She was only about 15 years old, but she was beautiful and trusting and faithful and religious, as was I. Religion was very important to me. I obeyed all the, the laws of the Old Testament scrupulously. And so it was important to find a wife who loved the Lord and who loved His Word as much as I did. Eventually, we became betrothed. Betrothal was a process toward marriage. It lasted a whole year. It was similar to your engagement, only much stronger because it took a certificate of divorce to break a betrothal. And during that year betrothal, the families came to know each other, a dowry was worked out, the temple records were checked to see if uh, we were both observants of the religious laws and to be sure we were not related. During that year betrothal, something happened. Something strange. Mary became removed and distant. She had always been quiet and always pondered things deeply. But during this year, 
She seemed even more removed and distant, and she stopped talking to me, and I couldn't understand what was wrong. I tried to get her to tell me, but she was reluctant. I decided to go up to the fishing village of Capernaum up on the north uh, west corner of the Sea of Galilee, and there did some work on some boats. And while there, I was determined when I came back to Nazareth, Mary was going to tell me what was happening. What was going on with her? Why was she so quiet? Why was she so distant and, and removed? I set her down. I said, Mary, you're going to tell me what's happening. You're going to tell me now. I love you. I trust you. Please share your heart with me. And it was in this time that she told me something for which I was not prepared, nor could I have ever been prepared. She said, and she broke out into tears as she said it. She said, Joseph, I am with child. And I said, Mary, my legs buckled beneath me and I stumbled backwards. I couldn't stand. I said, Mary, how can this be? How can you do this to me? We are betrothed. We love each other. I have trusted you. I was going to build my home and my family and my future with you. How could you do this? Tell me who the father is. I mean, I'll kill him. I'll kill him for committing adultery with my betrothal. And she said, Joseph, there's more. She said, I've never been with a man. And the child that is within me has been placed there by the Holy Spirit. That just added insult to injury. How could she expect me to believe that? I had never seen her with another man. Her family had never seen her with another man. But to say that this child had been placed there by the Holy Spirit was was too fantastic to believe, and it just hurt me even deeply that she made up something so wild. I was so angry, I didn't know what to do. My initial response was in anger, and I was going to obey the Scriptures. It says very clearly in Deuteronomy that a woman who has committed adultery is to be taken to her father's doorstep and there stoned to death. This evil must be removed from the midst of you. But I loved her too much to do that, even though I was very religious and a very righteous man, according to the Scripture. I couldn't do what the law prescribed. And so I resolved just to quietly break the betrothal and remove the obligations we had to each other and divorce her quietly. I was going to the elders at the city gate and explained that I was not the father and that she was with child, and our betrothal was thereby broken. Mary knew she couldn't stay there in Nazareth with the small-town gossip that had begun to circulate already, and so she went about 12 to 15 miles south to the town of Hebron, where her cousin, her older cousin Elizabeth, who had always been like a mother to her, where Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah were living. Mary knew that Elizabeth and Zechariah would take care of her and provide for her. While she was away, my heart was still breaking. I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't figure it out. I worked at my bench, sawing and cutting, but I couldn't get anything accomplished. My mind was just nowhere on my work. 
And then one night I had a dream. Troubled in my spirit, praying, I dreamed, and I saw this white light coming at me from a tunnel. And at the end of that light was an angel. And the angel said, I remember very clearly, do not fear, Joseph, son of David, to take Mary as your wife, for the child that is within her is of the Holy Spirit. And you shall call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. You see, the name Jesus is from the Hebrew name Joshua, and it means God saves. So by naming him Jesus, which the angel instructed me to do, I adopting him as my own, and I would bestow upon him a name which means God saves, because in our day, names meant something great. So as soon as I woke up the next morning, I got dressed and I rushed to Hebron to retrieve my betrothal, my Mary. I apologized to her for not believing what she had told me. I told Zechariah and Elizabeth the dream I had had and who this child within her was going to be. He was going to be the Messiah. That's what Mary said. He was the Messiah and he would save his people. I believed her now. And I thought now that this is God's plan unfolding. All of our problems would be behind us. <laughs> Was I ever wrong? Our problems just continued from that point forward because as Mary's pregnancy continued in her ninth month, of all months, Augustus Caesar, the ruler of all of Rome, decreed that all the world should be taxed. And we all had to go to the place of our birth, every male to his birthplace, to be counted in a census for taxation. I understand today when you're counted in a census that the census taker comes to you. Well, that thought never occurred to Augustus Caesar. We had to go to the city of our birth. And that meant for me traveling 60 miles south back to Bethlehem, the city of David, where I was born. Mary, as I said, was in her ninth month. Traveling 60 miles would certainly be a hardship on her, but it would have also been difficult to leave her in Nazareth unprotected to all the gossips, to all the, the people that were still pointing and whispering and saying ugly things about her and about me. So I decided the risk was less to travel with me than to leave her home unprotected. And so we made the three-day journey, 60 miles, 20 miles a day, walking to Bethlehem. And since it was her ninth month, when we arrived, the time came for the child to be delivered. And I had, I had seriously underestimated what would be happening in Bethlehem. I assumed that when I got back to Bethlehem, my family that had remained behind would have some room for us to stay. I thought surely there'd be some family, there'd be some some room somewhere, but I underestimated how many people had come back to Bethlehem for the census, how many Jewish religious leaders would be there, how many Roman soldiers would be there, and so there were no beds, there was no place anywhere for us. Even for Mary in her condition, I knocked at an inn, and the innkeeper said, I'm sorry, we are booked solid. 
And then I think he must have seen Mary's condition and he had mercy and he said, wait, I do have a stable around back. There are animals there, but there's no one else there sleeping. You're welcome to it if you so desire. So we went around back to the stable. It was just a, a cutout in a cave, basically. And there I made a place for Mary. I built a small fire. And as God had it that night, this child would be born. I didn't know what to do. I'm a carpenter, not a midwife. I, I, I took some, some garments and, and tore them into strips. And the baby came and I, I did what best I could do, as, as I had been told before in preparation. I wrapped him in some of those cloths and rather than lying him on the stench and filth of a stable floor, I got some clean hay and made a little bed for him in a manger and placed him there. And I've got to be honest with you. I, I had some questions for God at this point. God, if this is your son, your only begotten son, being born, then why is he in a stable? Why is he in a manger? Why are there no Jewish religious leaders here? No one from Jerusalem. No one coming to celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Well, that's not entirely true. There were some shepherds who arrived a little bit later in the night, and they were so excited. You know, you can never really believe what a shepherd says. <laughs> But these shepherds said, we, we heard a message from an angel in the heavens. He said, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, a Savior, a Messiah, Christ the Lord. And they said they knew that this baby was the one because they said the sign would be he would be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And those shepherds knelt, and they worshipped, and I knelt and I held that baby, and I, I tell you, he was fully human in every way. He cried like every baby's cry. And yet there was something intangible about him, something otherworldly that I couldn't exactly grasp. And I knew somehow seeing the face of this, this baby, I was seeing the face of God. The shepherds soon left and they went back to the hillside to tend to their sheep. But, but on the way, they were still singing praises to God and rejoicing at what they had had the opportunity to view. Sometime later, some other strange visitors came from the Far East. They were astrologers. They were stargazers. And they knew about the birth of our son, they said, because they had seen a star, a bright star, and they knew from their study of ancient literature that the, the symbol of a bright star would mean that someone important was being born, and so they followed the star as if the star was moving ahead of them until it came to rest right over the place where our baby lay. And thank goodness those wise men, those astrologers from the east did not come empty-handed, but they came with gold and frankincense and myrrh 
quite expensive gifts. And they came in handy. Because after they left, I was warned in a dream not to return by way of Jerusalem and Herod and back to Nazareth. That there were those who would kill our baby Jesus. And so we went south to Egypt. And for two years, we remained there and lived off of the sale of that gold and frankincense and myrrh because Egypt didn't need my carpentry skills. I couldn't build the things that they required. And so thankfully, that gold and frankincense and myrrh was God's provision to care for his only begotten son those two years we were in Egypt. At the end of those two years, I received word that Herod had died and it was safe now to return home to Nazareth. And return home to Nazareth, we did. And there we raised this Jesus, this Son of God. And as I said, he was a little boy. He did things that little boys did. When he played, he ran and fell down and scraped his knees, and when he scraped his knees, he bled real blood. He was really human. He did things that little boys do. I I used to rock him to sleep and read the scriptures, and he was good and kind and obedient. One day when he was 12, though, we went to Jerusalem to a feast, to celebrate the feast, and and afterwards we were on our way back home to Nazareth, that three-day journey, and two days northward from Jerusalem, we began looking for Jesus, assuming that he was with some of our family that were in, in our caravan with us. He was nowhere to be found. We backtracked our steps all the way to Jerusalem, looked all over that capital city, and come to find out he was in the temple all along discussing things with the the priest and the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, a 12-year-old boy. I was so upset. Jesus, didn't you know we were looking for you? And he said, Father, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I tell you, I I wanted to spank him, but I couldn't bring myself to spank the Son of God. And so I just shook my head and wondered. Is he my son, or is he God's son? He continued to grow in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and with man. And Mary, Mary his mother, loved him and raised him as only she could. I don't know, maybe some of you here today are like Mary. You hear God speak, and when he speaks, you listen, and you pray, and you ponder, and you believe, and you act on it. I don't know, maybe some of you men, though, are a little more like me. I want to see and hear and touch in order to believe. I need to... I need to see evidence. I need to see signs in order to know that what God says is true. Thankfully, I had that dream that that angel had given before Jesus was born that helped me, and I kept going back 
to this Old Testament, this prophecy that uh, a prophet Isaiah had written 800 years earlier. I found it. It said, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I hung on to that prophecy of Isaiah that was 800 years old. I hung on to that dream I had. And when I didn't understand, when I couldn't figure things out, when I had trouble believing, those helped me. And I cried out to God, God, I'm just an ordinary guy. I'm just a carpenter. And yet you have chosen me to be the father, the earthly father of your only begotten son. And so I did my best to put my thumbprint on him. I taught him how to, to cut and shave wood and mold and shape it and make things. And he became so good at it that I tell you, he could make a yoke for oxen that was a burden, light, and easy to fit. He became known as the carpenter from Nazareth. That's the impact that I had on the Son of God that I was chosen to help raise on earth. I wanted to tell you this story this morning because I am just Joseph, son of David. I'm just ordinary Joe Davidson. That's all I am. And yet God chose me and used me to raise his son because I was willing and open to doing what he asked me to do. I think there may be some of you here this morning as I said, some like Mary, who hear and believe and obey. Some like me, who struggle with faith, who struggle to hang on, who want to, who want to believe, but who want evidence. And I promise you that what I've told you here this morning is true. And if you will hear and obey and hang on, God will use ordinary people like you just as he used an ordinary Joe like me. He can and will do it. He did it then. He'll do it now. He'll do it every day. Someone opens their heart to Jesus. You can be that person today. And I pray you will. Let's bow together. Father, when you came into the world, you chose not to place Jesus in a palace, the son of a king and queen or prince and princess, to be showered with wealth and gifts and prestige. Because if you had done that, none of us could have ever really identified with him. Could have accepted the fact that he came for each of us. And so you chose a 16-year-old peasant girl and a simple carpenter 
to be his earthly parents, to raise him, to teach him, to guide him, to point him to you, which he did so perfectly. And still today, God, you use ordinary people in extraordinary ways to do extraordinary things. And so there are folks here today who have been used and who will be used for your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.